Kia ora everybody, welcome to Rebet Live episode 329. I'm very lucky that I'm in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, because I get to meet some very smart people. One of the people who's become a friend now is his name, Charles Chi. Now that name won't mean much in New Zealand, but what you need to know is this. He started a company that got acquired for over half a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Insane and amazing. He then joined uh, Greylock Partners, which is one of the most world's biggest uh, original venture capital firms in the States. They've uh, invested in a bunch of different startups in US, Israel, Canada, and all them, obviously, a bunch of them got acquired by Microsoft, Broadcom, Microchip, uh, McData, and a whole bunch. So he's a very smart man, an absolute weapon, and I'm extremely stoked to be, you know, talking to a billionaire, basically. Very smart man. Let's get into it. Charles Chi, Rebet Live, episode 329. Uh, kia ora everybody, what's up? It is Rebet Hollis. Uh, welcome to Rebet Live, episode, I'm not sure what. Very lucky to be joined by Mr. Charles Chi. How are you, mate? Really good. How are you, Rebet? Good. Thanks for the time. And what you can't see there is we've got a little um, <laughs> special awesome puppy on the ground, which is super cool. Um, we'd only just met uh, through mutual friends. Um, if you've not seen it, it would be mostly audio stuff. And you've got a pretty interesting past. And you've got to obviously done very well for yourself. And so I guess I wanted to start with um, a kind of a bigger question around my, my, when I was, my goal was by the time I was 30, I would have not be retired, but have options. Mm -hmm. Options was a thing I had. Your life, the trajectory that you've done with the things that you've done. My first question is, do you live your life now by, by choice or by design? And it's a question that I've been wanting to ask you since we met because a lot of people can have choices of what they choose to do with their energy mm -hmm. and others will reverse engineer the design of what they want in their life. So where right. you've got to now, I thought, right. it'd be a, I thought it'd be a nice place to start is right. how, you, how you live by that's choice cool. or by design. That's a really great question and I would describe my first half of my career as by design although it's very hard, it was very hard to predict where I would have ended up, mm. um, and uh, we can talk about that some more. But this part of my career, my life, is really by choice, and just selecting to do projects uh, that I'm personally very interested in, mm. um, either for um, personal motivation reasons or because I have a certain belief in an area, um, and I do that, you know, not having uh, kind of a regular commitment to uh, a, a job, I guess, or, or a place that requires me on a not ten, nine to five basis. Do, but do you, when you think about like how you reverse engineer your time, you've obviously got more options than most. Do you, how do you prioritize your energy? Do you go, okay, this is where, like how, how do you, what's your process for prioritization with where you choose your time to go now? as soon as you've got options? Well, um, so the, uh, let, me, let me take that back a bit. Um, prior to having a full-time operating career in operating roles, having worked for large companies and small companies and started companies, um, that was really much, uh, you know, pretty much driven by design. This is the career yeah. I was having and ladder climbing and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, that culminated in me becoming a general partner in a very large uh, venture firm. Uh, which gave me huge exposure to all sorts of areas that mm. I wouldn't have not, you know, normally in a traditional career been exposed to, uh, even though I had a, a startup background. Um, and so that was uh, really enlightening for me. Um, after venture, I decided I needed to do, um, you know, I, I need to take some time off. Um, and in that period of taking time off, I did a number of things, you know, personal pursuits like 
running a race car team and racing cars and sailing, uh, you know, 1,800 miles, or sorry, you know, 10,000 miles over, over 18 months. Um, so a lot of like personal passion things. Um, and subsequently to that, there are a number of projects that are much more business oriented that, uh, that are driving me. And as an example, I co-founded a regenerative medicine anti-aging clinic with a doctor. So that's taking a lot of my um, time. Um, and I'm doing a little bit of angel vesting in the Web3 crypto space. Uh, and that takes a little bit of my time. Um, and, and I have a variety of other uh, projects. So some of these things will consume uh, a priority based on where they are in the cycle of mm. their development, and others um, you know, are uh, just in the background um, you know, marinating. So w when you were doing the big venture stuff for the big firm, how did you filter through where you'd want to put your time in there? Was there insights that you learned from the big the big venture stuff that you've kind of created a formula for what you do now? Oh, for sure. You know, in uh, venture, I was there um, just over 10 years and probably saw, you know, within the firm, my own deals, everybody else's deals, a thousand different companies. Mm. And uh, one of the best uh, lessons I uh, got from that particular venture firm was um, adherence to a very high integrity approach to venture and business. Um, and that manifests itself in very different ways, how we do deals, deal terms, what we look for yeah. in candidates. Um, and there were a lot of senior partners who had been there you know, for 20, 30 years um, or more um, that were very, very helpful in this kind of PhD <laughs> cycle yeah, yeah, yeah. of, uh, of uh, you know, learning how to do business, especially technology where technology startups where essentially you're forecasting in the future with two guys in a you know PowerPoint deck. But usually the year three seems to always be that hockey stick, which is quite interesting on those pitch decks. <laughs> yeah, you always have an up to the right. And uh, no matter, uh, no, I, I haven't yet to see a, a, a one that shows, no, we're going to screw up here and then it'll go off to the right. What, what, uh, what shape do you think is more accurate when, when it looks at year three of those pitch decks? Well, um, you know, it really depends on the business. And I've, I've always felt that startups really only have one chance to get it right. And hmm. venture capitalists really are funding a product business opportunity, not necessarily, you know, a science project. Although, you know, today we've seen a lot of science projects yeah. in, the, in the crypto world. Um, and, you know, you get so much money to do it. And uh, right now we're in a very... Um, uh, very liquid market where there's a lot of money going into it so companies are raising a lot of money and that helps them get through a lot of mistakes you know mm. money fixes a lot of mistakes um, but um, I, I really feel startups have one chance to do it right they may have two chances and uh, but it's really rough if they don't get it right the first time what per what percentage of companies do you think if they what percentage of companies do you think stuff up before they start because they've got the wrong the eyes on the wrong price. You know, the the old uh, stats of uh, out of you know uh, ten companies, one or two will do really really well. Uh, one or two will go flat out of business, and the, in the middle they kind of get acquired or something. So uh, most of those acquisitions are getting acquired because you're trying to land it and and get give it a soft landing, and so you may or may not make any money on it as a, mm. as an investor, and, and founders may or may not make any money, as, you know, um, as in that soft landing scenario. So, uh, you know. If you, if you look also at the venture stats, um, it's, and I haven't looked at these late, lately, you know, I think it's like the 
top 10, not the top 10%, it's the top 10 venture firms that get all the returns, like the, the outsized returns. Yep. And um, most of them get okay returns, maybe not even better than the S&P, right? But there's a lot that, that don't. And um, it's very difficult to um, you know, see these numbers because they're not generally published. Mm. In your, what's the biggest takeaway that you, you learned from venture that you've taken into your life now? So pre-venture, startup hustle, had, a, had some big pops, come into venture world, understand the big sort of ecosystem and the, the world of money. What learnings have you, the main thing that you think you've taken from that into this, I guess, this third phase of, I guess, your career? Uh, you know, all of them are cumulative because you, I've always said that um, uh, where I am today or where one, somebody is today is a culmination of all their histories and experiences and we make, you know, choices along the way. Um, for me, it, uh, it's really given me a focus on, you know, what am I really, really passionate about and um, the, and if I do something business oriented, uh, the ultimate arbitrator on whether it's a good idea or not is whether you can make money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, me throwing money at a project uh, just because I'm passionate about it, that's a hobby, that's not a business, right? But ultimately, um, you have to make money because the market is the arbitra arbitrator of whether it's a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. um, so th that is one thing. Uh, the other is also, uh, and we, we hear this, all, I'm sure everybody's heard this all the time, execution is important. You know, there are a lot of good ideas out there, and I run into lots of good ideas all the time. But ultimately, it's about execution, and it doesn't have to be the best idea. If you can out-execute um, where you need to be relative to the market or to your mm -hmm. competitor, that's so much more important than just purely technology or the best, you know, best approach to something. Mm. Your... Um World and venture, it would have seen obviously the size and scale of what you're messing with. You would have um, you would have seen a lot of power and influence in, in big companies and big tech and big lots mm -hmm. of big money stuff. What's the biggest thing you learnt? What didn't you know about power, money, or influence then that you know now? Let me think about that. You know, uh, I, I'll take that back to uh, even prior to venture uh, when. Um, I was uh, a product marketing person and ultimately uh, founder of a comp my company and, uh, and co-founder of the company and you know in our first year of shipping we had a 250 million dollar rate in product uh, and uh, as a marketing person um, I really believe in marketing through education and uh, I wrote this um, article that it was a ghost wrote the article which gets placed in an industry magazine and the author is one of the reporters. And uh, you know we pay I don't know back then it was probably ten thousand dollars to get this article placed, um, and I, I subsequently it gets published. I subsequently subsequently had customers repeating back to me the things in that article and had to do with how to design and build networks. And it occurred to me, you know, in my little corner of the world, <laughs> yeah. where I spent ten thousand dollars or whatever the the amount is, that I can influence people so dramatically in this little area. You can only imagine what can be done when you talk about millions or hundreds of millions or billions, uh, you know, in some of the worldwide politics that we talk about. So that was an eye opener very, very early in my career. Hmm. What was the idea? Uh, for me, the, the, the company uh, was called Lightera Networks. Yeah, but what was the, oh. the, the idea that you put in that $10,000? Oh, I, 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 it had to do with some uh, principles around designing networks ah, yeah. and a particular type of network. So. Do, you feel, do you feel 
marketing today's lost its way a little bit? Or do you think it's gone away from, it's not so much education, it's it's more what, clickbait, hype, sizzle, buy it now, transactional? Well, I think it really depends on the industry, right? Um, we went through a period of, in the 90s and 2000s of more technology intensive companies, mm. whether it's uh, hardware or even some software companies, um, you know, uh, and, and software companies, how they re-architect how software is done, um, like web-based, you know, uh, um, services um, and uh, SaaS-based services. Um, and, you know, we went into this consumer period um, where it was initially, you know, very much around how many emails and how many people are signing up um, and then we got to ultimately uh, some very very solid you know consumer businesses social media businesses that are all around um, advertising and so forth that, that you know not repeating anything uh, anybody um, doesn't know already um, and so you know the marketing around there is very consumer oriented marketing so it doesn't necessarily have to be about education or changing people's minds about something um, What's interesting is uh, the crypto space, right? Crypto and Web3, where it is extremely technology intensive. Um, and uh, there's some really fantastic ideas uh, there. Um, and, you know, a lot of, um, I say, early uh, silly money was made because of um, how big this area has become. And it's, it's a really exciting area for me because of that. It reminded me, a it reminds me a lot of in the early 90s when I was involved in Unix and Unix computing. And again, you go to these Unix conferences, it's hardcore engineers, you know, yep. practically reading code in the conference. Uh, and you see a lot of that in these uh, crypto conferences. Mm. So that's, that's very interesting to me. Um, but uh, th there is gonna be a shift required for some of these companies where th they need to be uh, Making it much more user friendly for the consumer. Uh, you know, I was an investor in a particular company that provided tokens, and oh my gosh, to get those tokens and convert it and move it from one thing to another. And I'm, I considered myself relati relatively technical, but I was baffled at first how yeah, yeah. to, you know, uh, actually liquidate a portion of these things. Um, and I, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity in the crypto Web3 space. I mean, that's that's such a big area, right? Uh, DeFi that uh, there can be an opportunity for proper education of in, in a marketing sense in order to you know further and develop a, a particular company's business. Well, it's a great segue because one of the, the questions I had here was on our um, uh, when we met we had a conversation around in the early two thousands the founders of those companies the intellectual bar because they were executors and operators was a lot higher than what we see now with so much. Um, uh, circus like crypto activity and so many people winning by default then they just so happen to have a thousand Bitcoin that were just sort of sitting there and the next thing you know they're off buying NFTs for whatever. Right. What's your thinking when you think about the, that level of operator for those that had the skill set and talent that were creators versus those that potentially almost have won by default just by being at the right place at the right time and, and how this actually washes out because yeah. it can't, it's not going to be sustainable obviously right? Yes, and you know this is a um, this is my own personal anecdotal view, so it's not based on any um, real data. But 
what we were talking about was my observation where in 1999 at the start of the consumer internet uh, you know there were some big companies and there, you know we point back to these silly companies like pets.com where uh, or others right uh, that made a lot of money or some people made a lot of money and most of them were the founders or the early team made some money when they had a liquidity event but these were individuals who took risks and were trying to create a business uh, fast forward to maybe the last few years um, uh, a lot of money has been made and you know 10x maybe even 100x fold um, in the crypto space because of bitcoin yep. ethereum and others um, and um, while founders and the early teams are, are have done really, really well, you know, measured even in the billions, uh, we have a, a much larger population of people who've made, you know, in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars who aren't involved in the companies, but happen, as you said, to yeah. uh, buy some tokens. So really, really early on. Um, and so uh, what I do see is the next wave of uh, companies being created based on this solid foundation of intensive technology that we have in Web3 and, and, and DeFi and so forth. And this next wave will be based on a lot of um, business value or, and you know, maybe um, in, in disintermediating some existing industries because of their uh, distributed decentralized processing. And I think that's gonna be very, very interesting. And I think that wave, just like we saw from from 1999 to 2000s yeah. and on, the next wave is going to be even bigger. How do you think this plays out from, you know, you talk about crypto and, and Web3, obviously that's, um, we're down at um, uh, Startup Grind down in Silicon Valley two, a couple weeks ago. Everyone was talking about crypto, Web3, community. But so much of it felt like it was kind of copy-paste sound bites without too much depth. Yeah. Really behind it, right? Yeah. How do you think this practically plays out in the real world in the next couple of years? Like where do you, how, how big of a web do you think this actually is? And obviously you're talking about this, this next wave, do you think it's bigger than the 2000 wave of the, the tech pop, this, this web three money game? We, I, I definitely think the next wave, which is, um, you know, it's still in its development, uh, is gonna be huge. I think, you know, if, if you're involved in crypto, um, there's practically some kind of crypto event every week somewhere. You know, in, in Miami, there's probably one every week. In Austin, you could be constantly traveling. And if you're in PR in these companies that are in crypto and have raised a lot of money, you're constantly traveling mm -hmm. and there's a lot of activity, but I don't know if there's a lot of real depth. progress and yep. depth. And uh, I think that's one negative side effect of how much money has been created or put into these companies. There's a lot of waste going on. You know, I'll give you an example. I looked at a startup and it's a B2B, business to business uh, um, crypto company. And they had a chief meme officer. Yeah, and dude. so it's like, why do you have a chief meme officer? You're not selling to consumers. <laughs> and it's so, there's a lot of um, crazy spend going on without enough and maybe bl blame the boards or whatever, but there's not enough um, focus on the tangibles. And maybe, um, you know, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, brush everybody the same brush. Uh, I'm very sure there are some very well-managed companies out there, but again, because of how much sloppiness is going on, there's a lot of companies that are yeah. just not, they're doing silly things. Yeah. The, um, in terms of, let's say crypto for a quick second, who's, who do you think crypto is the biggest threat to? Um, well, at a global scale, 
Yeah, well, you know, um, I think it's, I think uh, the, the people who, you know, one principle behind crypto is that it really affects uh, fiat currencies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it has an effect on uh, maybe the central banks and governments. I think uh, investment banks, they already have uh, involvement in crypto. They're not going to, they're, they're, you know, they're not betting on uh, just all fiat-based uh, no. opportunities. So uh, I think it's really about um, governments and uh, fiat currencies and central banks and how that is all going to play out. Um, and I don't think it's going to be uh, a one or a zero, and no. it's not going to happen overnight. You know, things take a long time when you talk about the size of uh, today's um, you know world GDP. So, well, just even looking at the infiltration of crypto brands into sports in the last twenty four months has been mm -hmm. insane. Mm -hmm. You've got FTX is everywhere, Crypto.com is everywhere. Yeah. The, the faces that they've got behind it, they're, they're clearly pushing on this mainstream yeah. sort of adoption yeah. for it. But yeah, it's obviously going to sit on the um, on the governments or the central bank sides, whether it's yeah. central bank digital currencies or whatever it may be as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of branding going on. There's a lot of consumer branding, which I think is great, and um, I, I think uh, getting more things out into the open and lime, uh, you know, into the sunlight is very, very good. Mm. I actually do believe in some regulation of this because. Uh, there are, um, you know, individuals and companies playing fast and loose, which they yeah. wouldn't be able to get away with in if they were a traditional um, SEC uh, licensed company. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, regulatory in the ways of uh, currencies, but in the way people, um, some companies are going after individuals' money, yeah. and and so I've seen heard some big horror stories in, around this. Um, at your stage where you're at now, so let's say it's. Um you're at, you know, Charles 3.0, you've gone startup world, venture world, now into this sort of new mix space of, of bits and pieces. How do you navigate um, the opportunity and potential duty that you feel for impact for others versus income for yourself? How do you, is that a, that way of thinking, how has that evolved over time and what's, where you can't, at yeah, that spot now. You know, that's a uh, good question. I've, I've never um, done anything for money. And, um, you know, uh, my career choices, even early in my career, I would take sideways moves, or maybe some would argue backwards moves when I, when I first moved from Canada to the US, um, because I felt the learning I could have would be more beneficial for me long term. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of decisions, I don't think there's many decisions or any decisions I've ever made because I thought I'd make more money. Got it. I, of course I do that when I think of a investment, uh, particularly you know, in public markets where it's not about you know, the business that I'm trying to run. But in things that I'm involved in operationally, it's, it's never been about um, how do I make more money for Charles. Ultimately, it's about how do I great, create a great business, uh, how do uh, customers get a lot of value, how do, does the team, the employees, get more self-actualization, of course, the right compensation. And if we do all these things right, then you know I'll, I'll, I'll do fine. Um, and that sounds like very, um, you know, uh, a throwaway comment, but I, I really do believe in that. And as a venture person, um, we, every time we saw an entrepreneur who would uh, put his or her own financial gain ahead, and it was always very subtle, right? Um, but when we got a sense that they were in it just to make a quick buck or a quick flip, 
We, we weren't interested in funding the, the, those people yeah. because they would ultimately under-optimize the outcome. They may, for example, may not build out a big enough sales team, you know, invest in the sales team in, in order to grow. They want to get to a certain point and, you know, try to flip the company. Got it. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in, in venture, we, we try not to, you know, we, we try to see those types and, and uh, really try to avoid it. Hmm. So you don't, did you have, like, how do you think about impact now for you? Do you think of legacy for, because obviously, you know, you're not from America, you've come here and done good things. Um, your journey's probably different to, to most and, and think, do you, do you think about legacy now? Uh, no, not, no, not really. Um, uh, not really. Um, you know, I, I think only in the context of, um, you know, if I'm involved in a, a business or I start a business and people believe in the idea, employees, co-founders, etc. cetera, um, I want it to make it successful for them. Mm. Um, and I, you know, because they, they believed in it. Yeah. You know, when I first started my company, it was a long time ago, um, and uh, a lot of people asked me, you know, are, are you stressed out about uh, leaving? And I was working at the time for Cisco Systems, which, yep. you know, at the time the stock was doubling literally every eight or nine months. Um, I said, you know, I'm not stressed about myself. I can always get another job. I was stressed out about the people who were leaving their companies, whether it was Cisco or other companies, and they were leaving behind unvested stock because they believed in this idea. Hmm. And that to me was more stressful because uh, I have to make this work for them because they're putting their, their own livelihood at risk. Yeah, so you, you literally prioritize the team for the win first. Yeah, yeah, well, the team, but you know, the, the business all, overall, it all yeah. has to fit together. You know, business you can't team. just prioritize the team. Um, you, you, the business has to work, and you, and you, you want to clear the obstacles so the teams, the teams can um, perform. Uh, and if that all happens right, and we're pointing in the right direction, then then you, you, success comes from that. What's the best formula of team dynamic you've ever seen in your career? What's the best one that you're like, this is it? Um, and could you see it before it popped? No, it's re really hard to. You know, the yeah. most gratifying um, team experience, I've had a few, but the, the most gratifying one was uh, after the company I had uh, co-founded and we got acquired, a year later we had a uh, you know, team reunion um, and a lot of people came up to me and said, Charles, that was such a great experience. We should get the band back together. Oh, jeez! You know, and that that was wonderful. Um, and of course, they 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 you know made some money, and um, which was great. But they also had a great experience. Yeah, it's like the the um, retired athletes. They don't necessarily miss the sport. They miss the camaraderie, the team, right. the locker room. Yeah, those relationships, the dynamics, the energy, the momentum. Yeah, and it's that's tough to create. Can you when when um, when you're in venture world and teams would come and pitch you, could you, with your EQ, pick the energy of a team? Could you, was that part of like how much sway did that sort of have in terms of, I guess the IQ of the smarts of what they were trying to do versus the EQ of the that 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 band type mentality? Yeah, no, it, it's hard to, um, and you have to spend a lot of time with them, so it'd be post-investment that you really see yeah. that. You know, some interpersonal dynamics may come out that you see, but um, that uh, a really high-performing team, you don't really get a sense of that till till much later. Mm. So, when you were, if you were um, eighteen and you were pitching yourself today, what advice would you be giving your eighteen-year-old self around how the game of business is actually done? 
Well, honestly, when I was 18, I was uh, uh, probably a little shy, but a little cocky, right? Uh, <laughs> and um, I think that's all the right things to do when you're uh, naively going into a business. And there is that saying where, uh, you know, it takes a bit of naivete to, to go into something. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, uh, if I think about the, the past businesses I've been involved in, it's like, yeah, man, I was naive and thank God I was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, going into something like that, being naive and uh, but full of energy and drive and driven to be uh, right, uh, I think are important, you know. Mm especially if you're trying to create something new. Mm. If you're trying to fit in into a big corporation, obviously much different skills are required. Do you think that the optics of what a solid business leader looks like have changed over the last few hours? I don't think so. You know, if you look at the Elon Musk's of the world, the uh, Steve Jobs of the world, um, you know, any of these ce almost celebrity um, CEOs and founders, they have um, really high intelligence, really driven, strong uh, view of where things should go. As I would describe it, um, they can see around corners with yep. respect to their business. They can predict what is going to happen next. Um, and um, they have a lot of confidence, and not because they're just egotistical. They have a lot of confidence because they have a lot of knowledge and awareness and depth. Mm. And um, I, I don't think that has changed. You know, any leader, it doesn't even have to be tech, right? The top banks or if you're a top head, you know, lock maker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're, they're way ahead of their time because, and they're at the top of their game because they know, these business leaders know what they need to do and they know the dynamics of their, of their business really, really well. Who's the, the greatest leader you've ever witnessed in person? And what was the trait that you, you saw that were like, shit, yeah, we need more of that? Um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to see uh, and meet a lot of different people. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs um, because he just had such a strong opinion. Um, there was a story, uh, we had a mechanical engineer that worked for him at, uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, computer company that was, he, he started after Apple and then it got acquired by Apple and it was a cube. And uh, apparently Steve Jobs wanted the box to be a perfect cube. And our mechanical engineer who worked for him at the time said, well, if you put it in a mold, it has to be flared at the bottom so we can pull it out. It can't be yeah. a perfect cube, right? Yeah. Then, you know, cycles after cycles, and finally Steve Jobs said, okay, fine, and he was pissed off that it couldn't be a perfect cube. Um, you know, that kind of vision for excellence and mm. vision for what he had in, in mind um, was very, very impressive to me. Mm. Um, you know, I've met, uh, you know, when I was at Cisco, um, at the time, John Chambers, he, you know, led Cisco from very small to huge, quite a legacy. Uh, very impressive CEO, very strong sales and marketing skills. Um, so, you know, there, I mean, I've had different mentors at different points in my career where one helped me become a better people manager, another helped me become better um, conscious about, you know, the political sales process when, mm -hmm. when selling products. Uh, another would help me, you know, think through venture and, and analyzing companies better. Um, so there, there are a lot of different people at different times, whether they're, you know, relative strangers through to, uh, you know, people in my career that were, were really helpful. I was going to ask you, Charles, about the, on the mentorship side, did you proactively seek 
the weak spots you knew you had or was it kind of organically looking up to see those that have kind of come before that you were sort of aspired to like what was your yeah. process around mentorship you know it's it all organic you know um there were always you know being and as you get older of course you get more self-aware when yeah. you're young you're not as self-aware right um at, at least of your weaknesses you think everything is you know, everything you do is great um so uh for sure it wasn't because i was looking at least early on about my weaknesses in fact I had one conversation with uh, a, a sales director that I was working for when I was a customer systems engineer, and uh, uh, basically he told me I was naive, right? Yeah. And that was really helpful to me. It's like, what? What do you mean that by that? And and I, you know, didn't take it personally. It's like well, he perceives this. It's got to be true. Um, and it had to do with people management. And so uh, it definitely was not something I was thinking about, you know, weaknesses that I need to improve. It was more like people told me, it, and because they yeah. were, they wanted to help me. Yeah. Um, and I never sought out mentors, um, but people emerged in my life that were very good mentors to me. And uh, I think, you know, when I when I used to interview employees for companies, um, I would ask them that question: Who are your mentors in your life? Um, and the wrong answer is to say, oh, I've never had any mentors. Yeah. And that, that means they, they don't realize how people have helped them, yeah. right? And they think they're, they were solo in their career, right? And that, that, that's not possible, right? Um, and, and then there are others who say, well, um, Steve Jobs is my mentor. I said, well, did you ever work for Steve? Oh, no. No, no that you're, he's your idol. He's not yeah, your mentor, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, it is a, an important question when, when interviewing people to uh, really get a sense of, do they have self-awareness around things that help them in their career? Yeah, how much more powerful now is that self-awareness piece for the, the, these leaders to know their weak spots? It feels like it's become, not cooler to talk, talk about, but to kind of figure out where they're almost efficient, kind of, right? Yeah, you know, when you talk about the top leaders, uh, the, the, the challenge is that most of them have gotten there because of whatever um, way they've gotten there. And people even talk, write books about how to succeed in business, and it's their model of how they succeeded in yeah. business. Um, and it's validated because they've, you know, gotten to their career. Um, you know, and although there are, I'm sure, many um, leaders who are in continuous self-improvement, right? Um, and and I, I think that's great, but mm. I, I, I'm not sure how many will t talk about it. Yeah. Um, if you were to think about your your whole life's journey to date as a tweet, what would the tweet say? Oh my gosh, you know, I'm not, I, 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 I have Twitter, I never use it, so. Um, but if it, if it was a tweet. Okay, if there was a tweet, uh, it'd be, you know, uh, Right or wrong, I've been driven by passion. There you go. Do you feel your um, with we like when you're looking forward now? What's been the most exciting part? The startup trying to build to grow, the venture trying to find the the win, this this new phase. What's been the most? Well, you know, all of them worked in the time I was, you know, in that period of my life. Mm. And I, I had the most um, gratification uh, in, in an operating role, starting a company, yeah. running a company. That's the most gratifying for me. Be, being involved. Like being in involved, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so venture was really great because of 
the exposure to much more, um, but it was indirect in terms of your impact yeah. on you know teams and so forth. You could help steer, but not get dirty. Yeah. Did that? You were saying at the end of um, your venture world, you sort of reset for a little bit. Was that one of the reasons that you wanted to reset? Because you really you were kind of was it building resentment that you couldn't get stuck in yourself and you were kind of like, okay, I need to just like, yep, I had some wins, now I want to go and kind of do it, build myself? Was that kind of... Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's a really good way of putting it. I needed a reset, um, not because uh, of the um, um, desire to be in an operating role, uh, but, you know, venture can be uh, very intense. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you have all the accountability for um, the outcome of a company. But if you think about it, very low impact, right? Um, you can fire the CEO, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. if the CEO keeps screwing up or the founding team, um, you know, it's it's really stressful when when you can't impact it like the way you could in, in an operating, um, you know, when I was in an operating job. Um, and without naming names, there were some companies we had that are very successful now, but there was a period where, oh, like. We thought this company needs to get shut down. Yeah. Um, but they went on to to being very successful. The the whole game of startup world for venture. Everyone in the world wants to come to Silicon Valley. Everyone wants Silicon Valley money. There's obviously a lot of deal flow that comes from everywhere. What do you think is the biggest thing that people who don't live in Silicon Valley don't know about Silicon Valley of how to actually win or succeed or grow or be funding, whatever it is, what, what don't they know? Well, I, I think um, one of the biggest things about Silicon Valley, and this is changing over time, but one of the biggest things about Silicon Valley is there's the entire ecosystem is here and thriving around startups. So everything from obviously engineers, right? Um, but venture people, lawyers, even landlords will rent yeah. out to a startup um, where you know you go to certain other parts of the country unless you put down a year of security deposit, they're yeah. not going to rent to you. And so everything is here. And then there's also the uh, institutional and legacy knowledge of all sorts of technology businesses from semiconductors through to where we are from you know, mobile to uh, social to you know, crypto companies now. So uh, because you're immersed in this um, really deep, broad, long history ecosystem, uh, there's nowhere else in the world that has all of this. Yeah. Um, the fact that you and I met and we're talking about technology and we are in this uh, space here that is all full of startup people, um, and this is one of many, right? Uh, it is, it is a, a really exciting area because you can mm. meet people, you can exchange ideas, um, and it's, it's when I first moved here, I, I felt at home for the, you know, within the first month yeah, because, nice. because, because of that, right? It's your people. Yeah. So if you're a um, startup from Italy or New Zealand, Australia, whatever it may be, and you want to get one of the big boys in, in the States involved, one of the things that's become pretty clear for any sort of global startup trying to get in is getting access to the right person. If you just email info at whatever, it's not really just going to go through and you're going to go, oh, you're going to get into it. How would you describe the political landscape of navigating, getting to the circle that actually makes decisions or actually even being able to be seen because it feels like there's two totally different from the out before I moved here I thought it was one thing and mm -hmm. after actually seeing how it's done mm -hmm. it's definitely a lot different how would you sort of describe that 
how, how, it, how it actually happens. Yeah, you know, people talk about networking, and um, you know, I think at a high level, it is about networking. But people who are busy and and the ones that you really want to meet with, one wants to meet with. Don't network to network. You know, no. uh, they network because there's something specific they're looking for, and um, a lot of people spend their time networking. And I think it's a it can be a total waste of time, <laughs> right? Um, in, unless you're allocating a certain portion of that networking time to just you know assume that you're not going to meet anybody, right? Uh, so if you have an idea, uh, if you have a business, uh, if you want to develop that idea, I think it is really important to find. Uh, people who are, are, you know, share that enthusiasm or share that um, direction that you want to go, and find people with the right level of experiences as yeah. well. Work with somebody that has more experience than, than you do. One does uh, in order to get to the next 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 level. So, uh, you know, it's not easy to navigate, but it's actually not a very big space either. No. You know, because if you meet a couple of right people, they get you into. You know, whether it's Greylock or Andreessen Horowitz or Axel or whatever, they'll get you in because they, they know them and they, yeah. they want to quote unquote sponsor you in as a as a um, you know a mentor maybe. That was that was the point. It was definitely getting that getting the intro to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, when we caught up last time, you were talking about if you were to um, roll it through again now, you, there's no way you do a hedge fund. But you were saying then when you came out, you potentially would have. Why? Well, you know, after venture, I got really interested in um, uh, you know proprietary trading and uh, quant funds and big shit, big shit. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's all mathematics. Yeah. You have to deal with people, yeah. right? <laughs> and you know, uh, high frequency trading and all those things were really interesting, interesting to me. And obviously, it's way too late now, but um, and. And of course, from 2008 onwards, it's been you know just a rocket ship when you think of the public markets. Um, so uh, that was all very interesting because it exercised a different side of my mind yeah. in terms of business, where it's it's all analytical, um, non-emotive. Yeah, yeah, and you don't even have to necessarily think about balance sheets and income statements of these companies. It's really about trading, you know, and quantitative analysis and technical yeah. analysis and uh, high frequency and all those things combined I thought was super fascinating. So, but why would you not do a hedge fund now? Um, you know, because there's so many now yeah. and, um, you know, uh, Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's not my as big of a passion. It's an interest area, yep. and it's not as big of a passion. You were talking about one of the passions is going into the biohacker health sort of yes. space. So, what is it, and why the interest in that specifically? Well, I've always had an interest in health and wellness and fitness, and um, you know, looking back at some old photos when I was younger, I was like a, a skinny, a fat, skinny guy. So you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a slim person, but I had like this pot belly, and my waist was literally four inches bigger than it is now. Um, it's those long lunches for venture, mate. Yeah, so. well, this is even, this is before that. <laughs> oh, right? so, yeah. This is before that. This is when you know, slaving away at uh, 12 hours a day as a, as an employee somewhere, and. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm in better um, physical health now than I, I was, you know, 20 years ago, um, and so this pathway of going down, you know, every time I do something, I kind of get deeper and deeper into yeah. it, and so health and wellness is a personal passion area of mine, um, and um, in contrast, if you think about the healthcare system in in the United States, 
and there's you know broad understanding of how messed up it is because the expenses are yep. just off the charts. My girlfriend, she uh, broke her finger and um, and went into emergency. Long story short, broke her pinky. Right, had some pins put in. She got a bill for sixty thousand dollars. How do you get a bill for sixty thousand dollars for a broken pinky? You know, America. So, exactly. <laughs> it's it's just outrageous. Um, and of course, she's working through the insurance stuff, um, and and insurance is finally catching up with it. Um, but that's that's a crazy amount of money if you didn't have insurance, and that's a broken finger. Yeah. There are much more serious uh, health issues, obviously. Um, and so, uh, in contrast to those two things, um, I felt there was a business opportunity for people like myself. We're not, we don't. It's not about curing disease, but it's it's a clinic where we use regenerative medicine techniques for anti-aging. And what we talk about is helping you improve your cognitive health, physical health, and sexual health through science-based doctor-supervised therapies. So there are a lot of therapies and things that are available that are FDA approved or are used broadly in other countries but not available here. They may be FDA approved but they don't have an insurance code so um, no doctor offers yeah, it yeah, because yeah. they can't get reimbursed by insurance. So um, you know, it, this came out of the middle of COVID, start, opened my first clinic in San Francisco. Um, and uh, you know, timing is everything. We, we, we started at the depths of COVID and um, since then we've been doing very well opening our second clinic. And um, what I've, I'm finding is the population, especially here in San Francisco, um, you know, are thinking about their well-being and their wellness, and they want to spend money on this. And there are things that we do that can be helpful, but for people who have certain types of disease that we can help with. But we're not here to cure disease. Mm. Um, and you know, you asked earlier about uh, money and and so forth, and and whether I, you know, how I prioritize that in this particular business. Um, I, I felt that. Um, there is a elasticity to demand. So if prices go down, you get more demand. Um, and there's some other businesses around that do a few of the things we do, but their prices were like astronomically expensive. And I knew that with a certain amount of volume, you're still going to get very good margins. Yeah. And we've cut the prices on certain things about 50% below on average, uh, maybe even in the United States, all over the U US for some, a, a couple of our treatments. And it's completely true. The, mm -hmm. the demand just exploded for this particular thing. Um, so, um, you know, and what the point of that is that you, know, you don't have to make extreme margins and, uh, you know, and have it unavailable, but only to a few people. I'd rather have it available to a lot of people with reasonable margins. Mm. What's the, what do you see the success of that being? Like, like CVS's, they're everywhere. Do you see it as a franchise model? Like, what, what's the actual commercial play that you feel for that? Yeah. So, um, you know, our, our, my challenge is um, everybody knows what a doctor's office is. Everybody knows what a physical therapist does. Yep. Everybody knows what a massage, you know, therapist. Chiropractor. Does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Chiropractor. Nobody knows. Nobody really understands what is a biohacker health clinic, right? What is a no. uh, regenerative medicine clinic? What is uh, what does anti-aging mean? 
So um, I, I think the, for, for really broad adoption, it, we have to, uh, there's a lot of market education we, we still need to do. Got it. Um, and there are different ways people come into the clinic because they have specific things they're looking for. And then they learn about all the other things that we do, mm. which is great. So uh, my near-term plan is uh, we're opening a second clinic, I'll probably open a third clinic in the Bay Area within a year. Uh, maybe two more, uh, show that we have this uh, profitable, repeatable model, and uh, potentially you know, raise around and do something nationwide. It's not gonna be like a Starbucks where you have no. a thousand Starbucks, but you know, if we have 50 or 60 clinics uh, across the country, it won't be a franchise either because uh, franchises are, are really good for formulaic things, right? Yeah. You, you sell them the chicken <laughs> recipe or whatever, the burgers. Um, but for this, it requires a, um, it's a very high touch model. Uh, you know, it's a medical clinic. We have a, uh, we operate with a, uh, with a medical director. So it's a high touch model, high quality is important, um, and consistency. So when somebody comes into a clinic in San Francisco or New York, they get the exact same yep. high quality and experience. Hmm. If you had a million dollars to invest today, where would you put it? Um, how would you split it? Yeah, so uh, uh, so are you talking in terms of a business or in just uh, general investments that the average person average a, average person? And would it make a difference if it was a hundred thousand or a million? It does because you have a bit more freedom um, so same choices. Million. Yeah, same million. Well, you know, I think the stock market and the bond market are the hard. Like it, the conditions right now are so hard. Yeah, stocks are overvalued. Bond, you know, interest rates are going up. And so bonds, bonds are going down. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's it's not very many places to hide right now or, or feel safe. You know, when when companies, mutual funds or ETFs talk about a balance balanced mutual fund, it's hard to think about a balanced fund because it's if you're doing half bonds and half stocks, they're all going to go down right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the in the coming uh, you know uh, months or weeks even. Um, and so I think it's a really challenging market. Um, and so you have to invest in something that you have a very big believer in over the long run. You know, um, is it Amazon, Alibaba, you know, those type of companies, or Airbnb, you know, do you believe that that's the new model for doing things? Um, so selecting companies along those lines. Um, we've talked about crypto. I think crypto is a really interesting area. I think there will be a lot of washout in this area too. Totally. You know, there are too many tokens out there. Uh, not all of them are going to get traction. Um, the NFT marketplace, where it's really focused on art or maybe music, I think you know we, we hear about the, the the ones that are really you know they, they get headlines, um, but you know a lot of that art isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, a real art collector probably won't buy that. So there's going to be a, a lot of um, uh, you know. Uh, volatility, I would say, mm -hmm. in, in, in the markets right now. But So you have to look at something you really believe in over the next five years. What about in terms of uh, gold or commercial real estate or other bits and pieces of the currencies? How would you, how would you sort of split it? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I'm not a very good uh, money manager for other people. You know, I have, a, I have kind of a barbell strategy personally, which is very conservative, very extremely, uh, oh, yeah. and very extremely um, risky. And that's for uh, investing generally, not in, in, a, in and not, I don't apply that to everything, but for money that I want to invest, uh, that I have that kind of um, barbell strategy. Got it. Um, and um, so, uh, if you read a lot of the articles about investing in, in a high inflationary environment, 
uh, with potential risk to U.S. dollar value. Although right now the U.S. dollar is at you know highs relative to other currencies. Um, you know they they would argue uh, commodities. They would argue for um, alternative currencies. Yep. You know that are driven by commodities. Um, they would argue for uh, tangible assets like like real estate and maybe even farmland. So. Mm. It's a, it's a bit of a wild west. Yeah, it's a bit of a wild west right now. What do you think is the biggest financial arbitrage in the game right now? Oh. Everything everywhere. Yeah, everything everywhere. Oh my gosh. You know, that's one of the challenges with uh, what we, you know, that, that's why there's so much risk in the financial industry because there's been a uh, financialization of mm. everything. You totally. Know, a, a stock can have its futures and all the derivatives around it and you can have, you know, insurance behind those derivatives, right? Um, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the, the financialization aspects of the market is much bigger than the assets in that market. Yeah. So that's why when you have a black swan come in, uh, you know, the, it can be an extremely big problem. Yeah. And that's, that's the worry that a lot of people have right now. Mm. You know, the worry that we had, you know, with the, with the banks and 2008 uh, and what might happen now with um, inflation and US dollar and interest rates and how do you see that playing out do you think I it's can't. another pop or do you think it's another wave or just we're sort of in it well I'm hoping that the uh, the, the powers that know a lot more about this than I do yeah. uh, get us to a soft landing and that's what they've been they were talking about yesterday the um, if you were to build if you were to do a fund for what do you think is the best, the easiest type of fund to start? Well, you know, uh, right now there, I know a lot of people that are doing crypto funds. Okay. And um, there's going to be a regulatory shake out there too because a lot of them aren't. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean they don't it's have an ICC license, right? They're not licensed to be fund managers, but it's they're promoting Johnny, funds. Johnny at CryptoFundUS.com. Yeah, yep. yeah, and I'd I'd be very wary about that. Um, and but a lot of people are doing it. I, I have a friend that's doing it, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know they don't have their SEC license, so there's going to be a big clampdown. In fact, I don't know if you saw the article that came out today. Um, the uh, Gavin Newsom in California's uh, executive order to um, figure out how to better serve uh, the crypto market, huh. you know, with you know proper regulation and so forth, and really not in a negative sense, but in a really positive, constructive sense. At least that was the to push you know, forward, yeah. that part of the article I re read. So these are all really good things. Mm. Um, when you see your career to date, what are you the most stoked on that you think are you like shit? Yeah, did that. Uh, well, the, the company I started, like Hera Networks, um, it was an idea that uh, I, I created myself and my other co-founder, he was my um, counterpart on the engineering side at Cisco and, and I was on the product marketing side at Cisco. And that, that product was like spelled out to every single detail um, of, of what we wanted to do and, um, you know, because we had uh, a, such a great run rate and product and got acquired and they were shipping the same product you know 10, it, 10 years later so but it was acquired within like 18 months or something right a little more than that yeah, a little I can't remember exactly but a little more than that so I, I was really proud of that because uh, it was a real tangible business um, and it, a lot of people um, did well buy from investors yeah. to customers to you know employees when you get that check what, what's it like to wake up in the morning and be like shit yeah like when that check clears and you look at your bank account 
how did that feel? <laughs> well, it obviously feels good because you know I, I grew up uh, not wealthy and my family uh, emigrated to Canada uh, from Vietnam mm. and, um, and we had twenty dollars left by the time we got to Canada. So um, it, you know we were never very um, we were always pretty frugal. So it was it was nice to you know have some independent you know financial mm. independence. What did what did Doing stupid stuff with the money? What did you do with it? Oh, I always do stupid. You know, <laughs> did you do something that was just like that you've always wanted to do that you finally could go and do? Did you do anything? No, I mean, I didn't go crazy, you know, or anything like that. I, I mean, I, I did buy this trophy house, right? There you go. And, right, <laughs> it's like with me rattling around in this giant house. There you go. Um, and it's like, why? Why am I doing this? You know. <laughs> How big was the house? Oh, it was big. <laughs> Too big. Too big. For just for you? Yeah. Well, my rationalization was my family who live, you know. You bought it for the family. Well, yeah. They would come visit me. My mom, my dad, and my sister, and my brother. But they visited once, and. <laughs> and then you sold the house. Yeah, I did a long, long time ago. Um, what What do you see? How do you see the next? Uh, Five years play out from here. Well, um, um, I, I really like to see you know Biohacker uh, yeah. get to you know the vision I have for it. It's a, it's a challenging because it's such a different space than I'm mm. used to and different type of you know employees and mentality and so forth. Um, so it's challenging, but uh, I'm enjoying it. Um, and I think this area is so evolving, right? Um, and so so th that is one thing that that'll. It'll, I'll know whether it's on the right path in the next, you know, 12, 24 yeah. months. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm putting a lot more effort. Uh, it's taking a lot more of my time right now because we've gotten to a certain size opening a second clinic. Um, I'm really excited to see what happens in the Web3 yeah. slash crypto space. It's really, really fascinating to me. I do have a, the workings, a framework of a, a startup idea that I'm working through with somebody, uh, with a friend of mine who's on the engineering side. Um, and we're, we're getting to a point that we may go test the idea with potential customers. Um, and so that's pretty exciting. Um, I don't know if I want to run it because it'd be a lot of uh, yeah. more work, um, but heck, Elon Musk is a leader of <laughs> running several companies now, yeah. so if, if he can do it, I should be able to do it too. There you go. On that note, well, great chat, Charles. Nice chat, thank Solid. you. Presented and brought to you by Today FM.